Good morning, Veritas Church. How are we doing today? All right. Happy Baptism Sunday. Gotta love it. Excited to celebrate with all of you. If we haven't met, my name is Jordan Howell. I'm on staff here with the Salt Company, our college ministry. And to all the, the friends and family that are visiting from out of town or maybe in town, but just here to visit to support an individual that's being baptized, I just want to say welcome. Like in many ways, you're, you're in the living room of our family now, and we look forward to just opening up God's word together and continuing in a series that we've been in for the last 11 weeks. You're kind of just invited into the family conversation. But before we open up God's word, I want to have us do just a quick activity, all right? And so if you're an introvert in the room, don't be afraid. I'm not going to make you shake a stranger's hand or do anything weird, okay? Um, I want you to get out pen and paper if you have it. Otherwise, just a notes app on your phone, and I'm going to have you answer a few questions for me. Sound good? Say, yep. yep. Love it. All right. Before you write anything down, I do not want you to write down these words. I want you to memorize three words for me, all right? The words are dog, blue, and chair. Got it? I promise this will make sense. Dog, blue, chair. Memorize it. All right. Now, write down your answers to the following questions. Number one, where are you right now? Number two, without peeking or cheating, what day of the week is it and approximately what time? Good job. Hey, he helped you out. All right. Question number three. What were you doing before you came here? Next question. How did you get here? All right. What number is 419 backwards? All right, now I want you to write down the three words that I told you earlier. If you wrote down dog, blue, chair, congratulations, you have passed a concussion test. <clears throat> you are not concussed. If you did not write down those words, I'm going to ask you to consult with a physician. It's probably a good idea. So today, we're actually talking about this idea of tests. You know, not many of us enjoy tests, though there's a few crazy people out there that do, but we've all experienced tests in some way, shape, or form, right? Whether you were in school and you had to take a test, it was testing your knowledge. Did you learn what the teacher claimed to have taught you or what you had claimed to have read in your textbooks? Or maybe you've gone to a gym and you've hopped on a treadmill or you've picked up a weight or two and you've had to test your physical fitness. Or as we prepare to head into the family holidays, what's going to be tested? Your patience, probably. Maybe your self-control during Thanksgiving, right? You're going to be tested. Now, how many of you have ever heard before that in this life, your faith is going to be tested? You ever heard that before? Well, if you haven't, I'm here to tell you, it's true. Your faith inevitably will be tested. That's a part of human life. In fact, in 1 Peter 1, he tells us that we will be grieved by various trials and the genuineness of our faith will be tested. After all, that's what a test is, isn't it? 
It's just a process in which the degree of something is revealed. Do you have knowledge? Do you not? Are you fit? Are you not? Do you have patience? Do you not? And then when, you, when your faith is tested, the question is, do you have genuine faith or do you not? In 1 Peter 1, uses this imagery of like tests refine our faith like gold being refined by fire. Like your faith is gonna be pushed through the fiery flames of the tests of life. And the question is, what's it gonna show? Is your faith genuine? Is it real? Is it gonna be refined? Or is your faith gonna be burned up in the flame? It's pretty heavy, right? And we have to be able to answer this question. How do I know if my faith is gonna last? Or maybe to ask a more pointed question to say, how can I trust God in the midst of testing? After all, that's how you get through the test, to trust God in the midst of testing. So how do you do that? We're gonna open up to Genesis 22. Go ahead and grab your Bibles, open there with me. We've been in this series now for several months and we've seen God do a lot of amazing things and we've seen humanity do a lot of silly things, stupid things, maybe a better word for it. Okay. In the beginning, God creates, he creates the heavens and the earth. He fills the earth. He organizes it and he calls it what? Good. Yeah. He calls it good. He brings structure and order. He creates mankind in his image. And here's what he does in his kindness. He says, here you go, Adam and Eve rule and have dominion over the earth. Like you get to actually exercise some rule over creation. But by the time you get to Genesis three, you see that Adam and Eve didn't use their rule the way they were supposed to. Rather than listening to God, leaning into God, trusting God, they took matters into their own hands. They disobeyed God. They rejected God. And they sent humanity into this spiral of violence and death. By Genesis 11, you see that this trend is continued. Humans are working together to try and build this tower to the heavens to try and be God. And God, in essence, says, no, you're not gonna do that. I'm gonna scatter you amongst the face of the earth. And maybe you remember in Genesis 3 that God had made a promise. In Genesis 3:15, he had said, despite the fact that sin promises death and Adam and Eve would be kicked out of the garden, he would provide an offspring that would crush the head of the enemy. So he promises this offspring that would be a blessing to the nations, to all of the earth that a Messiah would be born. And so if you're Israel, the original audience interacting with Genesis, what you're actually doing ever since you've read Genesis 3 is you're tracking this line. You're tracking the offspring to say, okay, is the, is the line of the Messiah still going? And by the time you hit Genesis 12, right after the Tower of Babel, you're introduced to a man by the name of Abram, or as we know today, Abraham. And God actually tells Abraham, through you, Abraham will come this offspring through your family line will be blessing to all the nations of the world. But then you find out a couple problems. Number one, Abraham does not have a child. He's 75 years old. And number two, his wife is barren, meaning she cannot have kids. And it's like, really? 
Like this offspring is supposed to come from Abraham and his wife is barren. And over the course of 25 years, Abraham waits and waits and waits, but not perfectly, right? Takes matters into his own hands, just like Adam and Eve, sleeps with a servant, Hagar, has an illegitimate child through adultery, but God still shows his faithfulness to Abraham and his family. And Isaac is born 25 years after the promise in Genesis 21. It's amazing. God is faithful to his promises. But by the time you get to Genesis 22, you're beginning as Israel to start to say, what's going on here? Right? Because they're waiting currently too. They're wandering in the wilderness. They have been set free from captivity, but now they're waiting, just like Abraham was. But now Abraham has received this promise, and Israel's thinking, what's next? Well, good thing we have Genesis 22, right? Read with me, first couple verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Wait a second. What? Like this blessing that you promised for years has been born to you. And now you're saying, go offer him up. God, what are you doing? You might be thinking, God, what are you up to? Well, the answer is he's testing Abraham. He's testing Abraham. And what we actually need to learn is that this is not some like evil plot by God. He's testing Abraham actually for his good. Now, James 1 in the New Testament, we get these words. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Right? That testing would come from God, and it's meant to actually develop Abraham. One definition of testing is the means through which the genuineness of faith is proved and Christian character is developed. That's what God is doing in Abraham's life. Now, there are some translations that might translate that word test as tempt. I don't know, maybe your Bible would say God tempted Abraham. And I just want to say, if you continue reading in the book of James, you learn that God doesn't tempt people. Here's what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And whereas testing leads to steadfastness, tempting eventually gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. We see that tempting does not come from God, it comes from within. And so a good definition of temptation is the pressure to give in to ungodly influences that lead you away from God and into sin. Now, here's how these two things relate. God is testing Abraham. 
It's meant to be for his good, for his steadfastness, to prove his faith. But in the midst of testing, you know what can happen? We can be tempted. We can be tempted to turn away and to not trust God, to take matters into our own hands, to turn away from the God we love and to pursue our own way. So God does not tempt Abraham, but he does test him. And here he's testing Abraham by saying, you know that blessing that I promised you? That one and only son whom you love so much. Oh yeah, by the way, the one and only son through whom the covenant will be expanded and shown through. Be open-handed with him. In fact, go offer him up as a sacrifice. Seems like a pretty crazy command. But here's what Abraham does. Verse three of Genesis 22. So Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son, Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took it in his hand, the fire and the knife. They went together, both of them. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And Abraham responded, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Wow, that's intense. And you might be thinking, Abraham, you're crazy. Like you're not actually hearing from God. It seems to be counterintuitive here that God would give Abraham a promise and then tell him to offer up his son. It's like, God, what are you trying to do here with Isaac? And also, is this just against a moral compass to say we should not murder? And so if you only have Genesis 22, you're thinking Abraham is out of his mind, absolutely out of his mind. But What we know is before Genesis 22, this is not the first time that Abraham has been tested. And so Abraham's obedience makes a little bit more sense when you start to understand his life through the last 10 chapters. Here's two reasons why Abraham obeyed God when he heard his voice. Number one, Abraham knew that God's character was good. He knew that God's character was good. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to leave behind his native land, leave behind his extended family and go to the land to which he tells him. And Abraham gets to experience so much blessing by obeying God. But it wasn't just in his blessing that he experienced the hand of God. Even in his disobedience, he saw the faithfulness of his father in heaven. When he lies about his wife and God spares them, like 
not just in his success, but in his failure, Abraham sees that God is for him. In fact, just last week, as we unpacked Sodom and Gomorrah, we got to kind of zoom in on this conversation that Abraham had with God in Genesis 18. And here's what Abraham is saying to God. He says, God, I know your heart. I know that you're merciful. I know that you're just. I know that you're going to do the right thing. He trusts God's character as good, but that's not all. Secondly, he knew that God was God. It wasn't just that he knew that God was good. He knew that God was God. And he actually believed that God was going to do something supernatural here. I mean, if you look at this text a little bit closer in verse 5, after being told to sacrifice his only son, Abraham said to the young men, stay here with donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. He believed Isaac was coming back with him. And in verse 8, when Isaac had asked him, where is the lamb? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. He had incredible faith that God would do something miraculous. And thanks be to God, we live in 2022 where we have all of scripture and we can see what's going on in Abraham's mind as we look at Hebrews 11. In verse 17, it says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Wow. Perhaps we've become a little bit numb to resurrection, Veritas. <laughs> that Abraham would look at his one and only son and say, first off, I believe he's gonna provide a lamb, but even if he doesn't, if Isaac dies, I believe that God can raise him from the dead and we're gonna come back. He believed that God was good and he believed that God was God. That's enough reason to trust and obey. But I think there's one other interesting thing to note here as we just look at these verses here. And it's the fact that Abraham is not the only one being faithful. But Isaac himself is showing an act of faith. Now I grew up in the church. I had heard the story countless times. I'd read the children's Bibles and in my head, I always just envisioned that Isaac was this little kid that, you know, his dad gave him some wood to carry up a mountain. He's like, finally, you can do some chores around here, right? But if you actually dig into the text a little bit more, read and study, you learn that approximately 20 years has passed between Genesis 21 and Genesis 22. That means Isaac is between the ages of 18 and 25, we actually get to see that as the word for boy could also be translated young man. And also think about it. I mean, if he was a little kid, how could he carry up the wood for the altar up a mountain? He's between the ages of 18 and 25. And I think it's pretty fascinating here that it says, Abraham laid him on the altar. I believe that is true. God's word is true. But here's what I also think is true. Isaac stayed there and he chose to stay there. Think about an 18 to 25 year old trying to fight against a 120 year old. Who do you think is gonna win that one, right? 
My first year on staff here, I had a kid in my discipleship group who wrestled at Co. I was 27. I wrestled with him for like 30 minutes and couldn't walk for three days. He destroyed me. He made me look silly. And so I'm like, okay, if Isaac really didn't want to do this thing, here's what he could have done. He could have strong-armed his old man, right? No way he's staying up on the altar. He could have defeated his dad. He could have marched back down that mountain and said, no way. But that's not what he did. He laid there on the altar. And if you're Israel, again, reading this, you have to think, what is happening? You guys are out of your minds. You're trusting God to do this crazy thing and your future is on the line. In fact, not just your future, but the future of Israel, the future of humanity is on your shoulders. If Isaac dies, the offspring, the line is cut. No more Messiah. And so you're thinking, okay, they are trusting God, but should they be trusting God? Well, the answer to that comes as we continue to read. Here's what happens. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Okay. Now that we're on the backside of the story, we actually get a more full sense of what's going on here. And we should be just completely shocked, right? To look at the hand of God here that would lead Abraham up a mountain with his one and only son. And in a moment when he's about to obey, he says, wait, he intervenes. He says, no, 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 do not let your son die, but I'm going to give you a ram in his place. And not only that, I am going to bless you, Abraham. I'm going to speak blessing over you and your offspring, an eternal promise. And so now we look at Genesis 22 and we get a better idea of why God might have tested Abraham. First, we see that the Lord wanted to know if Abraham loved him more than Isaac. He's asking Abraham, hey, do you love the gift or do you love the giver? You've received the blessing, but now if I'm going to say I'm going to take that blessing away from you, are you still going to worship me? Are you still going to follow me? And so Veritas, let me ask you, do you love the gift or do you love the giver? That's a hard question to wrestle with. Now, fundamentally, we know the right answer, right? If you're 
getting ready to go holiday shopping this week, which is not a terrible idea. Save a little money along the way. Might as well, right? But you have somebody you love. You're looking to buy them a gift and not just any ordinary gift. You want to get them a good gift. So you buy them like a drone or something like that. You buy, you buy them a drone. And now imagine you are the recipient of the drone and you open it and you're like, wow, they must really love me. They gave me a drone. That is amazing. And you rightfully love the gift that was given to you. But now crazy turn of events. Okay. Prepare, put your seatbelt on. Someone storms in the door and they like hold you at gunpoint. And they're like, give me the drone or I'm going to kill your loved one. It's like, what are you going to do? You're going to give that drone up, right? It's like, hey, there's more drones to come. There's only one of my loved ones, right? You obviously love the person that gave you the drone more than you love the drone itself. And thanks be to God, that's how Abraham responded. Say, God, you have given me a son. My son is precious to me. But if you are saying that I must be open-handed with my son, I am going to trust you. I'm going to understand that you are for me. And God, above all else, you are the prize, not the gift, the giver. I see you as the prize. So that's the first reason we see. But the second reason is actually that God wanted to provide an epic foreshadowing of what God is going to do for us and the person work of Christ. Like, as you look at the oath in verses 17 and 18, I found this fascinating. In, in verse 17, God says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. He's talking about the multitude of offspring. Like, yes, you will, your offspring will fill the earth. But he actually turns his attention to Genesis 3 as he finishes this statement. He says, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And then your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. He is actually saying, I'm focusing in on a single descendant, a single line, the seed, the promise of God who would become the Messiah. Okay, this is not a trick question. Who is the Messiah that was promised in Genesis 3 and in Genesis 22 who has come to crush the serpent's head and to provide blessing to all the earth? Jesus Christ this amazing foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, who is a long-awaited son, who was a beloved son, who carried wood on his back as an instrument of death, obediently following his father to the point of death. Jesus Christ is the better Isaac. But that's not all, is it? As you think about this story, it's not just that, we see a picture of Jesus and Isaac. We see a picture of Jesus in the ram. As he is up on the altar, what I begin to see, what we begin to see is that we are Isaac. We deserve to die. Romans 6, the wages of sin is what? Death. And we know all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What we deserve is to be on the altar, to die but God, in his kindness, in his grace and mercy, here's what he has done. He has provided Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless lamb of God who steps down from heaven and puts on flesh and ends up on the cross in our place. 
just like the ram in the thicket, he is now offered up as a substitutionary sacrifice with a crown of thorns on his head. This is Jesus. We actually see in Genesis 22 that God is our great and faithful provider, right? Abraham himself naming that place, the Lord will provide. So in the midst of testing to see God, we love you because you are the giver of everything. And to see that he himself is not only the giver, but the gift itself. We know of no greater provision than God giving of himself to us through the personal work of Christ. So Veritas, as you face tests in your life, and you will, maybe some of you are in the midst of one right now, how can you trust God? Well, from this text, you can see that you can trust God in the testing because he is the great and faithful provider. He is the great and faithful provider. He has made a way. He has taken our place. He has lived in a way we couldn't and died the death we should have. And praise be to God, Abraham was on to something. When we read in Hebrews 11, Abraham was on to something. He said, I believe my son is going to resurrect. And guess what? Jesus did not stay dead. He rose again. He resurrected to prove that sin is rendered powerless and that death does not get the last word. That is our Messiah. He is the promised seed who has come to crush the serpent's head and to extend blessings to all the earth. This is our God. He is the prize. And so Veritas, I just want to invite you, if you have not yet placed your faith in the finished work of Jesus, what are you waiting for? Today is the day to look at your life and say, I no longer trust in my performance, but I trust in Jesus's performance on my behalf. It's no longer me being sacrificed, but Jesus being sacrificed in my place. He is the perfect spotless lamb of God. And that he did not stay dead, but he resurrected to make you a new creation. Have you believed that? I hope you have. But if you haven't, I think now is as best a time as ever to do that. Now, for many of you in this room, you said yes, Jordan, I've made that decision. And I think you are going to fall in one of two camps. Either you are like Israel and you are in the midst of testing. You're wandering in the wilderness. You feel like your faith is being tested. And I just want to challenge you. Would you remain open-minded in your relationship with God? And here's what I mean when I say that. That you're no longer trying to put God on trial and saying, you know better than he does for why you're in the situation you're in. But you're, you're actually genuinely leaning in in faith and asking God, what are you trying to teach me right now? What are you trying to grow in me right now? How is this test ultimately for my good and for your glory? Would you remain open-minded? And for the rest of us in this room, I trust that maybe you're not in the midst of testing, but you are just comfortable. You've received so many blessings, whether it's family or possessions or health, but your blessings have just lulled you to sleep spiritually. And now you're struggling to be open-handed with God. I would ask you to do that, to say, God, with you is my prize. You are the giver and the gift. Here's what I can do then with every other blessing. I can be open-handed and say, God, all that I have is from you and for you. 
would you have your way in my life? And regardless of his response, here's what's true. He is your prize and he's not going anywhere. And Veritas, if we would live this out, I think two different things would happen. Number one, we would be a church that worships, which I can already say, we are a church that worships. Getting to sing alongside you guys, like I know of very few things in my life that bring me to tears the way just worshiping with you does. But consider what might happen if a real test or trial comes. I mean, we're coming up on 10 years as a church. We've experienced so much blessing. The question is, will we continue to worship when a test comes? And I pray to God that our answer would be yes. That he would be the prize in such a way when the tests and trials of life come, we're still worshiping. And with that, that we would be a church that lasts. It's cool to have been a church for 10 years, to have celebrated hundreds and hundreds of baptisms, for people to have encountered God here. What a gift. But I pray that we would be a church that lasts, that 100 years from now, there would still be people getting baptized right here because we have said, God, you are our prize. And no matter what tests come, no matter what trials come, we are going to stand firm on the rock, our firm foundation, that is Jesus Christ. Would that be said of this church? But in order to do that, we need to remember that he is our great and faithful provider. Amen? All right, pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are the giver of every good gift. And you know us well enough, God, that we don't oftentimes look at tests as good gifts, but you do. You see how the tests and trials of life actually produce steadfastness in us, that you use it to refine our faith like gold purified by fire. So though it's hard to say with our lips, God, we confess we are grateful for the tests of life that draw us closer to you. And God, I thank you for the, just the so many blessings that you have lavished upon us individually and as a church family. But God, we plead with you. Help us to not love the gift more than the giver. Jesus, help us to see you as the prize. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Jesus, as the author and perfecter of our faith. You are the one who for the joy set before you endured the cross and despised its shame and now are seated at the right hand of the Father rejoicing over your church. And so God, I pray, would you help us to stand firm in the midst of testing and to worship you as our great and faithful provider. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen.